Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. In today's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, David looks at the thought of Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the most influential and controversial philosophers of modern times. Nietzsche wanted us to rethink almost everything we believe about morality and to question the conventional difference between good and evil. Was he mad or was he onto something? In the first series of History of Ideas, I sometimes associated the authors I was talking about with a catchphrase. So Hobbes, famously, had nasty, brutish and short. Tocqueville, the tyranny of the majority, Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil, and so on. The author I'm talking about today, Friedrich Nietzsche, had two catchphrases. They literally are almost t-shirt slogans. You can see them on posters and on t-shirts, along with his extraordinary haunted face and his even more extraordinary bushy moustache. He is extremely recognisable. The two catchphrases are God is dead and the will to power. And between them, they give a kind of very pithy summary of Nietzsche's genius. But they don't give a summary of his genius on their own. So if you take them separately, there is nothing particularly profound about them or really particularly original to Nietzsche. So the idea that God is dead is essentially saying that religion, particularly Christian religion, has been exposed. It's been revealed as a kind of construct. It's not something that comes to the human experience from outside, from above. It comes from inside. We made it. It's an expression of us. It's not a way of defining us through something supernatural. And that idea that it's a construct and therefore it's a kind of veil. It wasn't original to Nietzsche, and many people in the second half of the 19th century when he lived, when he wrote, were saying something similar. So this was a thought that came to many people after they read Darwin. Nietzsche was no fan of Darwin, he was no fan of science. He thought science was also a kind of construct, and we ought to be able to see through that too. But Darwin inspired many people to wonder whether what we call religion isn't actually a way of telling a story that has a better explanation through science. But also the arguments that were being made about the historical Jesus in the second half of the 19th century, the thought that the Bible can be read as a historical document, that it's a product not of revelation, but of human imagination or at the extreme of a kind of propaganda. It wasn't only Nietzsche who was starting to have these very, very profound doubts. And the will to power, the idea that there is at the heart of human life and also of life, of animal life, a drive to dominate, a drive to express individuality through a kind of assertion or self-assertion. It could be creative, it could be destructive, but that we are as living creatures driven by a will, a kind of impulse to impose ourselves. It wasn't only Nietzsche who thought that, many people have thought that throughout the history of political thought. And sometimes it comes out in arguments that were later associated with Nietzsche, unfairly to Nietzsche, arguments about domination in international politics, about racial hierarchies, about some people being born to rule, and so on. God is dead, the will to power, those ideas are not original to Nietzsche. His genius was to combine them. His genius was actually to explain one in terms of the other. 
What Nietzsche did was to explain the death of God in terms of the will to power. And the way he did it, the real originality of Nietzsche's thought, was to conceive of the will to power of the powerless. Because that, for Nietzsche, is what Christianity was and is. It's the expression of the will to power of the powerless. And once you see that, you see through it. And once you see through it, in one sense at least, you've killed it. It's dead. The meek shall inherit the earth. There's a Christian catchphrase. Who would come up with an idea like that? The meek shall inherit the earth. Well, Nietzsche had a very clear answer. The meek would come up with that idea. Why would they come up with that idea? In order to inherit the earth. It sounds obvious. But there was something about how Nietzsche put it that made it absolutely revelatory to many people and also horrifying to many more. There's a more Nietzschean way of making the same argument. Nietzsche said that human beings would rather will nothing than not have a will. All of us, even those of us who have very little or nothing, who have no power, won't give up on our will. So in order to express our will, we will will powerlessness. We will will nothingness. Better to will nothing than to be nothing. And for those who are nothing, they will look for a vehicle for their will to power, which will be the expression of their nothingness. And that, for Nietzsche, is Christian religion. So in that way, it's an extraordinary idea. It's a radical idea. It's a slightly mad idea. And Nietzsche expressed it or variants on it across his writing in different forms. He wrote about many, many things. And it's not by any means all about this. It's not all about either the death of God or the will to power. But his writing connects. He was prolific. He wasn't prolific like Bentham was prolific. He wasn't a great list maker or systematizer. This was more stream of consciousness, prolificness. It just came pouring out of him, particularly during the 1880s, the late 1880s above all. So the arc of his life was remarkable and in many ways painful for him. He was a kind of prodigy as a young man, an academic prodigy. He was one of the youngest ever professors in the German university system, a system that's very hierarchical and status-driven. He was a sort of prodigy of philology, but he was also a difficult man, and he fell out with his colleagues, he fell out with his friends, he famously fell out with the composer Richard Wagner, and he moved away and outside the system that had nurtured him. And over the course of his life, he became much more of an outsider and a kind of wanderer. He was unsettled. And the more he moved away and the more he wandered, both W-A-N-D-E-R-E-D and the other kind of wander, the more he wrote. He wrote a lot in the last decade of his life before he went actually mad. And then he lived another decade. So in the mid to late 1880s, as it was pouring out of him, he was also moving towards the edge of madness. And in 1890, he had a full-blown nervous breakdown, and he spent the final decade of his life in an asylum, and he stopped writing. That is, he stopped writing anything that was published. He wrote a lot of crazy letters. The Genealogy of Morality, the book I'm going to talk about today, comes from that period. It's 1887. It's somewhere before the edge of madness, but it's not that far before, and it has a streak of madness in it as a lot of Nietzsche's writing does. And Nietzsche's writing is extraordinarily self-referential. So by this point, the lines between the books were getting blurred. They refer to each other a lot. He's the kind of writer who quotes himself a lot, more than he quotes anyone else. 
And yet the genealogy of morality stands alone. It perhaps is Nietzsche's masterpiece. It's certainly the clearest statement of that relationship I talked about at the beginning of this talk between the origins of Christianity and indeed of morality. This is the genealogy of morality and the will to power. And it is a genealogy. So he tries to tell the story both backwards and forwards. It's an account of the kind of heredity of morality. Where does it come from? How did we get here? And in that respect, it does have quite a lot in common with Rousseau's second discourse, the discourse on inequality. And it's a genealogy in a sense that we might recognize from how we often use that word now. It's a family tree. Genealogists are people who trace the origins of families or of individuals, trace them back. And if you think about a family tree, it can have two kinds of shape to it, depending on the question that you're asking. So one question you might ask of a genealogy is, if we start with someone alive now, maybe the person tracing the family tree, someone or a family, and trace it back, what does it open up into? Because each person has two parents, and those parents each have two parents. And quite quickly, as you move back, a family tree gets wider and wider. And you see the extraordinary range of people or influences that had to come together in some contingent way to produce this outcome, you or me or them. We all have multiple, multiple ancestors. So a family tree can open out backwards, or you could start at the beginning, that is some point back in time. Take some human being or some family at some earlier period and watch that open out as one person maybe has many children and those children maybe have many children. And a family tree becomes something that unfolds from one to many to many more. And so you see how many different things have a single point of origin. There's something of that going on in Nietzsche's genealogy of morality, just as there was in Rousseau's second discourse. So Rousseau both wanted to explain how some things that seem to us so central have all sorts of different things making them up. They come from these multiple sources some aspect of conventional social existence comes from so many different contingencies. But he also wanted to tell us that if you go back to the beginning, you see an early simple story open out into this amazing and terrifying complexity as a simple version of the human life becomes endlessly complicated. So Nietzsche does a bit of that too in his genealogy of morality. Both wants to show how many different things went to make up our moral code, but also what happens if you start with an earlier, perhaps purer or simpler version of the human experience, how it can open up into multiple different possible outcomes. It really depends where you start. And Nietzsche tells it backwards and he tells it forwards, a bit like Rousseau does. And there are other things he has in common with Rousseau's story too. He is going back to an origin of the human experience, which has for him a kind of clarity and simplicity, because human beings were once less dependent on each other than they are now. His origin story has in it an element of independence and also of unselfconsciousness, that there is for Nietzsche at the beginning of his story of what it is to be human, a version of being human, which is less self-conscious than our version. And Rousseau had something similar to say. And yet, Nietzsche and Rousseau are so different in so many ways. One of the obvious differences is that Nietzsche's is a genealogy of morality. So what he is primarily interested in is getting from the pre-moral to the moral. 
whereas Rousseau was primarily interested in how you get from the pre-social to the social. So the most important question for Rousseau really was where does society come from? And from his answer to that question, he gets an answer to the question, where does our conventional morality come from? Nietzsche was much more interested in the question, where does our morality come from? And from that, he thinks you get an answer to the question, how did we end up with the kind of society that we do? Or to put it slightly differently, the central distinction that Nietzsche wants to understand is between good and evil. Or as Nietzsche puts it, how did we get from good versus bad to good versus evil? Whereas what Rousseau wanted to understand is how did we get into a world that was divided between mine and yours? These things are connected for both men, but they have a very different order of priority for them. More straightforwardly, a big difference between Nietzsche and Rousseau. Rousseau starts with pity. Pity is there in his origin, in his account of natural humankind. For Nietzsche, pity is one of the things that has to be explained because it is an add-on. It comes with morality. Indeed, he thought it was a product of morality. And he called it a kind of sickness or an epidemic, the terrible epidemic of pity that swept the world with the arrival of Christianity, which for him was a disaster. He wants to get back beneath and behind pity. Rousseau starts with pity. And then maybe the biggest difference of all, the crucial difference, the why question, the how question that really puzzles them and bothers them. For Rousseau, it's how and why did the few, the rich few, come to dominate the many? For Nietzsche, it's the other way around. His big puzzle is how did the many come to dominate the few? Because the many, for Nietzsche, are the weak, and the few are the strong. So how did the weak come to dominate the strong? For Rousseau, the rich are the weak. He compares them to imbeciles and children. For Nietzsche, the puzzle of modern life is that the many came out on top. That's the story he tells in The Genealogy of Morality. So where does his story begin? It's not a natural story. It's not a state of nature story. It begins with a version of the human experience, which is hierarchical, which is profoundly unequal. So it doesn't have its origins in natural human equality. It has its origins in inherent human inequality, because there is at the start of his story, the difference between the strong and the weak. And the strong are the few. Some human beings a few of them, a narrow band, are capable of living with a kind of distance from the rest, above the rest, with a disdain for the rest, because they are powerful. The will to power manifests in them. They are the creative ones, they are the dominant ones, and that is what it means for Nietzsche to be human. That is to have that as a possible experience. But it is a limited, that is, it is a rare experience. And there is something rarefied about the origins of this story for Nietzsche. So it's hierarchical, but it's not structured as such. So the hierarchy is not something that is expressed in law or in some kind of code. It's certainly not expressed in some kind of constitution. The hierarchy, the structure, is simply expressed in how the powerful behave, what they do, who they are. And Nietzsche says in this origin of his story that in that world, the distinction between good and bad is simply the distinction between what the strong do and what they don't do. What they do is good. And the test of whether it's good is whether they do it. It's not whether it matches up to some ideal or some code or some measure. 
it's simply expressed in the act. So this is a very expressive version of what it is to be good. You recognize it when you see it and you see it when it is done. And to be bad in this world, and Nietzsche says this explicitly, doesn't have any connotations of evil or even wrongdoing. He says to be bad is simply to be ordinary, not to be one of the strong. And the strong don't define themselves against what is bad. They don't even define what is good. They just do it. And that's a version of human life and expression that for Nietzsche is the closest to our true creative potential for those few, those very few. And the rest, well, they don't care about the rest. It really is distance and disdain. And then something happens to this. It's not by any means an idyllic state, but it is for Nietzsche at least potentially a creative state. And it is, to use a Nietzschean phrase, an all too human state. Where does the worm enter this story? In three ways, and you could say these are the three Ps. This is not exactly how Nietzsche puts it. But if it had to be summed up in three words, three things happen. Priestcraft, philosophy, and property. The one that connects Nietzsche's story to Rousseau's. So priestcraft means in this world where the strong are few and good simply because they are strong. There will be people who try to find other ways of expressing their will to power, which is stifled by the fact that they are not so strong and they are not so creative. They are not so self-empowered. And one way of doing that is to create for yourself a kind of code of self-denial, to be an ascetic, as Nietzsche says, a self-denier, to stifle yourself deliberately and then to turn that into a kind of ethic. And that, for Nietzsche, is what early priestly castes, C-A-S-T-E, priestly hierarchies did. They sought to purify the human experience, to make it cleaner, to deny it some of its earthier, baser pleasures, including pleasures of simply treating other people however the hell you like, because it was an expression of their will to power, because they had no other outlet for it. If you have no other outlet, one way you can do it is to try to purify yourself and then try to persuade others that this is itself a manifestation of something worthwhile, of something worthy. Initially, this kind of priestly asceticism was a withdrawal. It could go with a form of hermit life, a sort of solitude. So it's very self-defeating in a way, or self-denying version of the will to power. But it also had the possibility to become a kind of social phenomenon. And for Nietzsche, one of the things that happens quite quickly once you get priestly purification is disdain turns into a kind of disgust. In the original version of the human experience, the strong have disdain for the weak and the healthy have disdain for the sick. So Nietzsche says, originally, there was no reason for the healthy to look after the sick, to lower themselves to the level of the sick. They didn't care. Why should they care? Why should the healthy care about sickness? But it's disdain, not disgust. The priestly version of it introduces a kind of squeamishness around ill health, but also around basic bodily functions. It extends from ill health to a kind of squeamishness about dirt, a squeamishness about bodily fluids, a desire to somehow purify the body by stripping it of all the things that come out of it. And from that disgust, it's a very small step to shame. And once you're in the world of shame and people trying to persuade other people that there are things they should be ashamed of, you are not very far from having created a stifling morality. And Nietzsche also says that for these priests, disgust quite quickly becomes self-disgust too. 
The Genealogy of Morality, it's not exactly a funny book. I don't think it has any jokes in it. But sometimes it's hard not to smile just at Nietzsche's lurches of imagination. And he can be writing in extremely abstract terms, highfalutin terms, about the origins of morality and then launch into a disquisition on why it is that these priestly castes are so obsessed with their bowel movements, why it is that basically they live through their indigestion and their stomachs. That, for Nietzsche, is one way in which the worm turned. Philosophy is similar but different. So philosophy is not about purification, unless it's about intellectual purification, but it's primarily an expression of curiosity. But it's curiosity expressed in the form of general questions. So moving beyond, this is good, this is bad, because it happened, because I did it, because it's who I am. There are no questions to ask. You are not allowed to ask me why, because I did it, and that makes it good. To a world in which people want to know, well, what is the good? What is the good in general terms? The what questions. What is justice? What is truth? And this starts for Nietzsche, as it does for most people who try and tell the story of philosophy, or at least it really gets going with the ancient Greeks. Nietzsche was very conflicted about the ancient Greeks. He both hugely admired and indeed longed for aspects of their culture, and also thought that this was the beginning of the end. This was where the rot set in. And he distinguished within ancient Greek life and society between the pre-philosophical, or as it's sometimes called the pre-Socratic version, before Socrates came along with his endless annoying questions, his constant asking what, why, where, how, pushing for the answers, pushing for the truth. Before that, when people just lived, so sometimes it's the contrast between Homeric, heroic Greek culture and society, and the thing that arrives with Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle, the more academic version, as it came to be called. In the heroic version, people did. In the academic version, people asked. And the problem with the version where people ask is once they've started asking, then the questions and their answers to the questions shape the actions. Because the thing that philosophy does is that it overlays human action with a superstructure which conditions the action. People can be expected to do things in the name of truth, in the name of justice, which are not themselves manifestations of the good and the bad. They are artificial overlays. And once you've started down that road, once you've started asking these questions, your society is essentially turned inside out. So where once good and bad came out of action, now there is a structure which determines what is good and bad and conditions action. And that, for Nietzsche, is the beginning of something genuinely bad. And then finally, property. So property for Nietzsche is a problem because it introduces into the idea of ownership, the idea of owing things. So his understanding of property is once one person has said, this is mine, it creates obligations. It creates obligations on the part of other people to respect that property, to acknowledge it, indeed, eventually, quite quickly, to repay debts. You get very quickly on Nietzsche's account from property, ownership, to debt, owing, owing things to other people. And you get very quickly from debt to guilt. And in the way he tells the story, these words are very closely connected. So the, the philologist is always there in Nietzsche. He often notices that words have similar origins in his genealogy, in German or in Latin. But I'm telling this story in English. So from ownership to owing, from owing to debt, from debt to guilt, 
and from guilt quite quickly, an alliance can be made with shame. And suddenly these things start to come together, guilt and shame and worrying about what is justice and what is truth and are you doing it right and are you living by the highest ideals and the asceticism bleeds into the shamefulness and the shamefulness bleeds into the sense of guilt. Yet still, in this version of the story, we are still pre what Nietzsche thinks of as morality, partly because this is still the ancient world. The ancient world had its priests. The pre-Christian world had its priests. The pre-Christian world certainly had its philosophers. Socratic was pre-Christian. And the pre-Christian world definitely had its wealthy individuals. Indeed, it had its slave owners. Wealth wasn't just wealth. It was absolute power. And these were narrow elites. The priests were elites. The philosophers were elites. The rich men, and they were all men, were elites. This wasn't the common people. This wasn't the ordinary. This is still a highly hierarchical, highly elitist version of the human experience. But out of shame and guilt and self-denial and debt comes the opportunity for the many to get their claws into the few. And it creates the opening for the decisive move in Nietzsche's genealogy, which is what he calls, in a memorable phrase, not quite his catchphrase, but maybe it should be, the slave revolt in morality, which is his name for the Christian revolution, the turning of the world upside down, when the many use these ideas in order to constrain the few. How do they do it? Well, he gives various examples. I'll just give a couple. Another Christian catchphrase is love thy neighbor. There's a nice idea. What does it mean? Well, for Nietzsche, what it means is it introduces the idea, not just of neighborliness, but of community, that there is something that is owed to the many, whoever they are, doesn't matter who your neighbor is, you should love that person. It blends the few into the many, and then it constrains them. And Nietzsche says in the genealogy of morality that the relationship of the individual to the community, which is created by the Christian creed, the idea that we have something and owe something in common, the relationship of the individual to the community is like the relationship of the debtor to the creditor. Suddenly, you owe something. And as soon as you owe something, you are no longer that free, creative, self-mastering human being. You are trapped. You are trapped by something that exists outside of yourself and that you do not create through action. It determines your actions. And Christianity fed this impulse that allowed, as Nietzsche saw them, the slaves, both literal slaves, but also in a more metaphorical sense, the downtrodden. Let's call them the meek. It allowed the meek to get their claws into the strong by imposing on them codes and laws, religion, but also constitutionality, morality, good and evil, a whole set of categories, all of which in Nietzsche's mind limit the capacity of individual human beings to be themselves. They're designed to limit that because the people who have nothing to lose because they cannot be themselves want to constrain their masters. And that's what happens with Christianity. That, in a sense, is why it was constructed. And this is a construct. This is not an act of divine revelation. This is not a supernatural power intervening in the human story. This is human beings doing it to themselves, the many doing it to the few. And as Nietzsche tells this story, he does both look back and look forward. 
So there are bits of the genealogy of morality which are genuinely horrifying to read. Nietzsche does contrast pity with cruelty. And it's not fair to say that he celebrates cruelty, but he definitely embraces it in the sense that he thinks it is absolutely fatal to the human experience to try and suppress it or to deny it. But also he sees it in his origin story, in his genealogy, not just right back at the beginning. He says all religions are founded on cruelty. All of this is a manifestation of the will to power. And the will to power in its origin is simply an expression of the ability of people to do things to other people and not to care. That, for Nietzsche, is the bedrock of human creativity. In perhaps the most horrifying passages in the genealogy, he describes what Christians do to each other. As he says, by Christian standards, not maybe by his standards, The worst things that you can find human beings doing, the worst tortures, the worst cruelties, the most horrifying things are what were done in medieval Christian communities. He particularly picks out medieval German Christian communities and he itemizes the tortures, the horrors. This was Christianity in action. This was not anti-Christianity. This was the Christian religion. He says, who were the people who boiled other human beings alive in oil? Christian kings. There is cruelty underneath this attempt to invert cruelty and replace it with pity. You can see the cruelty, he thinks, behind the pity. But he also tells the story forward. So there's something underneath it, but then there's another thing that's laying over the top of it, on top of this veil, the veil of the slave revolt, the thing that tries to invert the human experience. There are those more modern phenomena democracy, the ultimate expression of the idea of the community, that we owe something to the community, to the ordinary person. The ordinary person who was once for Nietzsche the definition of what it means to be bad. The sick, we create welfare states to make them well. We care about the downtrodden. We think the downtrodden deserve a voice. That's who we are. And Nietzsche thinks that's who we are because we are the products of the slave revolt. Democracy is overlain on the top of Christianity, as is the rule of law as is liberalism, as is ideas of rights. All of the great panoply of civilized 19th century European life, of progress, of liberal progress, of democratic progress, all this for Nietzsche can be understood in terms of the slave revolt, which is the expression of the will to power of the powerless. They would rather will nothing than not have a will. The many would rather will democracy than not have a say, even though for Nietzsche democracy is the negation of human life because it is just stifling. It is designed to stifle. It is designed to limit. All forms of legality, he says, are a limitation of the human experience. It is a shocking and bracing philosophy. Above all, I think what Nietzsche wants his readers, whoever they were, to take from the story that he tells is an understanding of the inversion at the heart of it. And in some ways, the person that he resembles here of the ones I've talked about, it's definitely not Bentham. Nietzsche was contemptuous of utilitarianism, the ultimate artificial scheme designed to limit human expression and creativity in some kind of calculation machine. He really was one of those critics of Benthamism. He has something in common with Rousseau, but also a lot that distinguishes him. But there are echoes of Butler here. I don't know if Nietzsche read Butler. He might have done. I don't know if Butler read Nietzsche. He probably did. 
But that Erewhonian notion that there could be a world turned upside down in which the things that we think are bad are good and the things that we think are good are bad. So for instance, ill health that we think is just an accident in Erewhon becomes something to be punished. That has a kind of Nietzschean ring to it, except Nietzsche's version is not the utopian fantasy adventurer version. Nietzsche is doing this through what he thinks of as a true history of the human condition. This is not utopianism or dystopianism for Nietzsche. This is simply telling the human story. He says, what was once bad is now good. But he also says, we have to remember that all those things that we call good were once bad. The things that we believe in as good as opposed to evil, because we are now in the world where the central distinction is good and evil, not good and bad. And evil means wrong and mustn't be done. Evil is something that can be punished, and certainly evil is something that you can feel guilty about. He thinks all those things that we call good were once bad. The idea of community, of sharing, of looking out for each other, of turning the other cheek, of loving your neighbour. The idea that ordinary people deserve the same say as everyone else. The idea that the worst thing that you can do is to be cruel. The things that we think are good were once bad. Once upon a time, to be cruel was to be human. To disdain the community was to be human. Even marriage, he says, and again, this has some echoes of Rousseau, though he's a very different kind of opponent of marriage. Even marriage, he says, something that we think is an absolute bedrock of what it means to lead a good life, a moral life, to devote yourself to one person, to be true, to be committed. Once upon a time, in Nietzsche's genealogy, marriage was bad. And the reason it was bad is because by claiming one woman to yourself, even as an ordinary person, you are stifling the capacity of some human beings to take whoever they want and to call it good because they did it. That's what makes marriage bad. It is a genuinely shocking philosophy. And where does it lead? Well, that's the question with Nietzsche, where does it lead? There is no doubt that somewhere in this story there is a hankering for that earlier lack of dependence not self-sufficiency as such, because this is not a purely individualistic story. There is for Nietzsche a core value of culture, and culture is not simply what individuals do. There is something collective about culture, but it is the collection of the few, not the many. Culture filtered through the community for Nietzsche is the antithesis of culture. Democratic culture is almost, or maybe it really is, a contradiction in terms for Nietzsche. But that absence of dependence, that's the thing that some part of him hankers for. And it is different from Rousseau's version. So in Rousseau's version, the thing that he misses is the ability that human beings had to fold themselves away, to disappear into the woods when they got into a difficult situation to walk away from it. What Nietzsche misses is the capacity of some human beings when they got themselves into a difficult situation just to trample all over it, not to walk away, but somehow to walk through it or to go beyond it, not to disappear, but to to rise above it. He often uses this word distance. You should be distant from the thing that tries to constrain you. In Rousseau's imagination, the place to which human beings can escape from this trap is the forest or the woods, nature in that sense. In Nietzsche's writing, the fantasies are fantasies of the desert or of the mountain top where the air is pure and dry. There's a kind of dryness. 
This isn't priestly purification, but it's a kind of rising above. It's not asceticism, but it's a stripping away of something that holds people back. Sometimes you could read a story like Nietzsche's. Indeed, you could read a family tree. And when you realize all the things that have gone together to make you who you are, you feel trapped by it. You discover that you are just this contingent product of all sorts of forces over which you have no control. And indeed, that's something that many people felt when they read the evolutionary story that emerged in the second half of the 19th century. This feeling of emptiness, almost nihilism, it's random. It is actually nothingness. Maybe what we should learn from this story is not that we are right to will nothingness, but we should reconcile ourselves to the contingency of the whole thing. But Nietzsche was completely clear that he was not a nihilist, and he didn't want people to read this story and reflect that as a result of it, there's nothing we can do. We're just trapped by forces that long precede us. He thought that when you see how contingent it is, you should be liberated by it. But also, he thought that what you ought to take from this story is the understanding that the trap is created by the thing that was trapped. That is the ultimate inversion. The stifling of the will to power was created by the expression of the will to power, the will to power of the powerlessness. This is not a story that says that the will to power is futile. Quite the opposite. This is a story that says even the powerless can find an outlet for it if they are creative enough, determined enough, maybe even ruthless enough, these terrible medieval Christians, maybe these terrible contemporary democratic politicians. The cruelty of which they are capable shows that the will to power is still alive and kicking, even in civilized European societies. This for Nietzsche is meant to be an emancipatory story, not a nihilistic story. Where did it lead him? Well, it led him to madness. And the madness is there, no question. Three years later, he had his breakdown. And then to the most extraordinary afterlife in the history of modern philosophy. So when Nietzsche was just pouring this stuff out, writing three, four books a year, no one was reading it. It was too mad. There was too much of it. There's a kind of hectoring tone to some of it, which if you're really right on the receiving end can be hard to take. So people stopped reading Nietzsche. He was forgotten, essentially. And then he was taken to an asylum and no one heard from him again. And as soon as he finally shut up, people started to listen. And quite quickly, once the books stopped coming out in this unstoppable torrent, people across Europe began to read them and to be inspired by them. And from 1890, the year he went mad, to 1914, the start of the First World War, he went from nothing and nobody, a forgotten once minor academic celebrity, to one of the most widely read writers in the Western world, influencing all sorts of people. Theodore Roosevelt read him. George Bernard Shaw, the man who also loved Samuel Butler, was inspired by Nietzsche. And Nietzsche for a while was everywhere. And this kind of emancipatory message was heard, heard by all sorts of people. And then the First World War came and suddenly Nietzsche's star started to fall because the association changed. He was not the emancipatory philosopher, the mad emancipator. He was the German. And he was the German whose views particularly of the will to power, of dominance, of hierarchy, of cruelty, were associated by the enemies of Germany in the First World War with German ruthlessness, with German cruelty. And then that story was massively accelerated 
by Nietzsche's association, through no fault of his own, partly the fault of his sister, but mainly because of the fault of his disciples, with the Nazi regime, and elements of Nietzsche's thought, the Aryanism, the celebration of the blonde beast, what looked to many people like the anti-Semitism, was picked up by the Nazis, and Nietzsche, for some, appeared to be the house philosopher of the Hitler regime. And when the Hitler regime fell, Nietzsche was nothing again. He was cancelled. He was cancelled in 1945 because Nietzsche was the prophet of Nazism. He wasn't, but that's how he appeared. And it was only in the 1960s and 1970s that he was allowed a voice again, that he came back. He was rediscovered. He was rediscovered, particularly in America, by people who wanted to use him, not for the purposes of politics, but of what came to be called critical theory, what became something that is now usually known as postmodernism. The contingencies in his story, the idea that most things, maybe everything, including morality, is a construct, was used for theories of art and culture, for how to read literature, for how to think about philosophy. And the politics, which was thought to be too awful and too embarrassing to mention, was just parked to one side. So in a way, it was thought maybe if you could just forget about the nasty stuff. There were elements of Nietzsche carefully husbanded, carved out from the toxicity that could be useful. And yet from that, as it became clear that Nietzsche wasn't just useful, he was a kind of complete philosopher. The politics came back in. And people began again to ask the question that they asked after 1890 about this philosophy, this extraordinary mad philosophy. What does it mean for politics? Because there isn't a huge amount of politics in Nietzsche, though there is some, and maybe more than most people think. And it's not Nazi politics. It's not crude nationalism. It's not crude racism. It's complicated, and it has a lot to do with Nietzsche's understanding, not just of modern politics, but what kind of politics was possible at the start of his story. There is a way of arguing that Nietzsche is a sort of egalitarian political philosopher, so long as the people who are equal are the people at the top, that is, the masters and not the slaves. Slave equality for Nietzsche is a disaster, but equality among Homeric heroes, treating each other genuinely as equals, could be the basis of the best of human culture. But really, there are probably three ways Nietzsche's argument could go for politics, and there have been people, both then and now, who've been willing to push all three of them, or at least there have been people who've been willing to push each of the three of them. One possibility is that this is an argument that seeks to take us beyond politics. Politics is part of the sham. Politics, like God, is dead because particularly democratic politics is itself an overlay of Christian morality. And once you see through it, maybe you can see through all of it. You can see all of it, all of the things that we think are now good, democracy, justice, welfare, the rule of law. When we see where they come from, when we trace them back, when we do the backward story, we see the cruelty that lies behind them. We see the will to power that lies behind them. We realize that they're just a shell. And when we see they're just a shell, just as Christianity is just a shell, we need to break free from them and from it. Maybe democracy should be lumped together with God. One of Nietzsche's most haunting images in a different piece of writing is when he says, and this is writing in the 1880s, now that humanity is finally free of the dead hand of Christianity, we, we humans, are like sailors setting out on an open sea. And as he says, what an open sea, we can now go anywhere. 
if we leave that version of politics behind. Or there are people who argue that once we set sail on that sea, where we should be heading is towards a new politics, maybe a new kind of equality, an equality that takes us all seriously, not as slaves, but takes us all seriously as genuinely self-expressive human beings. There are many people who have tried to construct from Nietzsche's argument a new understanding of democracy itself, one that gets beyond the sham and tries to take human beings seriously as freely expressing individual self-creating agents. And then there have always been those people who have found in Nietzsche what they think is an expression of a kind of pure politics, the people who separate out the story about the death of God from the will to power and who focus on the will to power and who say that what Nietzsche identified is that behind all of it, there is something more basic, more cruel, more domineering, more hierarchical, and that that is politics, that there can be no politics unless we understand that somewhere, somewhere in it is going to be something that we modern, liberal, democratic Christians, if we are still Christians, find unpalatable. But we shouldn't find it unpalatable because it's part of who we are too. There are those people who think that what Nietzsche is above all is the man who ripped the veil off politics to show us the real story. And the real story is a story of power politics. There are those people now, there were many more of them in the first decades of the 20th century, Nietzsche's followers, who found in Nietzsche's thought really not just a justification, but an excuse for the most appalling cruelties. Those people are not Nietzsche. Nietzsche is not his followers. Nietzsche is the philosopher who thought that we were about to set sail for the first time, for a long time, on an open sea. I think Nietzsche is not the third. I think Nietzsche is either the first or the second. Nietzsche is not the person who wants to say, tear off the veil and see it for what it really is. Nietzsche is the person who wants to say, tear off the veil, and then you can do anything. More about Nietzsche and the genealogy of morality can be found in our show notes or on the History of Ideas page at talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Next week, it's Rosa Luxemburg, fearless revolutionary and also fearless critic of the Russian Revolution. What did she see that others missed? This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,